0: Good morning and welcome to Rising. Yesterday, at least 19 children and two adults were shot and killed at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. This after an 18-year-old gunman opened fire on the school where children in just 2nd, 3rd and 4th grade were taught. With officials confirming this morning that all 19 children were killed in the same 4th grade classroom, Texas Department of Public Safety Sergeant Eric Estrada told CNN that the alleged shooter identified by Texas officials as Salvador Ramos shot his grandmother, and then drove to and crashed his car near the school. He got out with a gun wearing body armor, was engaged by law enforcement, but he he did make his way into the school. According to Estrada, the grandmother was in critical condition.
1: According to DHS, border patrol agents exchanged gunfire with Ramos upon entering the building. Uh, risking their lives, these Border Patrol agents and other officers put themselves between the shooter and children on the scene to draw the shooter's attention away from potential victims and save lives, they said. And ultimately, Ramos was killed at the scene.
0: Yeah. Uh, yesterday's tragic events is the second deadliest shooting in U.S. history. This comes after Sandy Hook Elementary, where 26 were killed, and Parkland High School, where 17 were killed. Uh, just terrible um, terrible tragedy, obviously something that happens more frequently here than other places um, something that you know gets discussed in the news a lot our seeming inability to get this problem under control. Uh, you know we were talking about a mass shooting just a few days ago.
1: Yeah, I struggle with the word inability because it suggests to me an effort to try. And I think after a number of these events, where nothing changes where legislation goes nowhere because there is a dependable cohort in congress that is never going to vote for any kind of gun legislation no matter how popular it is no matter how many conservatives and people across the board understand that a certain degree of change needs to happen no matter how hands off democrats are about the second amendment as a whole no matter how much the laws are tailored to specific kinds of ammunition or specific guns or background checks it doesn't seem to go anywhere. And I think that part of the dispirited tone that's emerged around this event is because not just the underlying tragedy, of course, but because there is this sense of futility hanging in the air where there is this almost acquiescence to the reality that there's no political will to do anything different.
0: And we're right now in the holding pattern phase because we we know who the shooter is, but we don't know enough about him. So everyone is kind of holding their breath for how the narrative will be set. Uh, You know, was he a white nationalist? It's it's, it's a Hispanic sounding name, so probably not, but it's not impossible. Mm -hmm. Did he get by his gun legally or did he get it illegally? Um, You know, what extremist content was he involved in? Were there warning signs? Was he known to law enforcement, as it has been the case actually in in some of these previous shootings and the Grocery, the supermarket shooting. Uh, that was actually a person who was known to law enforcement. Just fell through the cracks. Very frustrating terminology. So we're we're kind of uh, obviously everyone is very angry about this, and people you know the people will be angry about the the gun aspect of it. But then there are other sort of circuits that fire depending on. You know, if he was an Islamic extremist, probably not. But if he was, that would animate a different group. If he was an illegal immigrant, that would animate a different group of people, if he was, and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, at the end of the day, when you look at the gestalt of these things happening in this country, this is our 27th Mm -hmm. this year, and it's not even halfway through the year compared to numbers in other countries that are closer to, you know, zero. It comes to a point where even if there are particulars of any given case— which you can hook an excuse on, you can't look at the totality of these events and say that there's not something specific about what's going on in America that needs to be addressed. And even if you took all of the different rationale that, rationales that get put out there, um, even if you think it's mental health, and some people argue that mental health is brought up as a way to escalate the you know, gun lobbies and those interests, but even if you think it's mental health, what is being done to make American mental health care better? are we going to extend mental health care to all through a medicare for all style program no then are you bringing up good um, mental health and good faith if you think it's enforcing our current gun laws what are the failures what, what's at the root of our failures to do that right now Does it has something to do something like the fact that 40 percent of police officers are involved in domestic violence disputes and themselves have an ongoing rage issue that maybe could be addressed culturally or through some of these uh, mental mm-hmm. health actions The problem is I'm open to there being a cluster of causes that result in these sorts of events. But the only solutions that seem to be credibly supported by at least the more far-right conservative elected officials in this country are those that entirely put the onus on individuals to armor up, send the kids to school with bulletproof backpacks, put more people with guns in schools, metal detectors, and basically turn the entire country into a carceral state. And I don't know how a group that focuses so much on the idea of individual freedom can want to create a society where freedom is so impinged for the most vulnerable of us in that way.
0: Well, look, I am not uh, broadly particularly impressed with the conservative solutions that are offered the, right, the, we need better, we need more school resource officers. Well, the school resource officers didn't do anything in the Parkland shooting. They hid as this whole thing happened. Um, And in fact, I know that introducing more school resource officers, even if it would, you know, in the one in a million case where there's a school shooting and they would actually interfere and stop it, you have to weigh that against all the times where just bringing extra disciplinary measures into the school is bad for students.
1: In the top um, supermarket, there was a guard. He had a right. gun, they exchanged fire. He tried his best, right. but the shooter was wearing armor.
0: Right, <laughs> and the, the metal detector, school already feels like prison enough to some students in some ways, making it uh, more so doesn't seem, it, right, uh, bothers me on libertarian grounds. That said, I am also not particularly impressed and maybe we'll talk about this at greater length uh, in your radar with the look i am i am a reasonable person i will hear out whatever gun uh control policy or, or you know background or whatever it is going to be i will hear it out i will discuss we can discuss whether we think it would significantly reduce violence in some way i i am not very persuaded that given the reality that we have so many guns in our country already like more guns than people.
1: Yes, one hundred twenty guns, So for every many
0: guns. It, it, yeah. If there was a policy to like wave a magic wand and make those guns disappear, I absolutely agree. We would have less gun deaths. Well, we would be a less that, violent right?
1: Well, Australia was another country that didn't have as many guns as us, but in the grand scheme of things, comparable, because nobody has as many guns as us. They had one of these horrific shootings and their public policy response was to do a gun buyback program. And they haven't had these kinds of events since then. And you can decide that your commitment to the free proliferation without constraint of guns is worth the death of all of these kids and all of these elderly people that were just killed in the grocery store and all of these other kinds of things. But you just kinda gotta own that that's where your moral position is. And people aren't doing that really explicitly because I think the public blowback to folks who would state outright that this abstract right, which I understand is important. You know, as a a black American, I, I understand the importance of the second amendment and why you would have a really meaningful distrust of the state and wanna be able to protect yourself. At the same time, there's no other unrestrained rights in those kinds of ways. We talk all the time about the constraints on speech that exist lawfully under the laws, whether it's, we're talking about slander and libel laws well, and, but, and those kinds of things. Uh, but there's, talk
0: about, very, there's very few. They, Actually, it's, I think okay. it's, it's well, the similar. There's very few restrictions on speech, very few restrictions on speech. They just, they just
1: passed all of these restrictions on being able to protest at Supreme Court Justice's house. There's all kinds of appetite for restrictions when it Affects and offends right. the elites and the wealthy. I'm sorry, that tends be well, the for way me. that goes.
0: Not an appetite but for when, me.
1: But when you are a child in a low income environment, the way that just happened in Texas, when you are a grocery shopper in a low income environment, the way that just happened in Buffalo, you know, it seems to me that there's a pattern of rights for me and not for you, mm-hmm. and we can infringe upon these fundamental principles in limited ways, when it protects that affluent and that when it protects literal children and elderly people trying to buy, you know, groceries or, or the, the cakes for their three-year-old of collect, child. The
0: task of reclaiming, of disarming, of collecting the guns that are unlicensed, that are in the possessions of people who actually under the law currently should not have them, they're felons, et cetera, seems daunting. It seems likely to involve actually a vast increase of encounters between law enforcement and uh, people engaged in antisocial or quasi-criminal or dist- or, are, or are rightly distrustful of law enforcement, I think there would be tons more of those kinds of clashes that cause us all as a society to say, no, we don't, we, we don't want our police to be doing this. And it would, it would be, it would, it would be un, very unfeasible to collect guns from people in that way.
1: I, I agree to some extent. And it's got me thinking about why it is that in this country, not just that we have so many guns, but that there's such an appetite for so many guns. And this gets us back to some of these cultural conversations people have been having about, you know, what is it about America and Americans that makes us feel so hostile um, to each other and having such a, a lack of a sense of the community? What makes all of these shooters who are often you know, young, mm-hmm. disaffected men feel so isolated and disaffected. What is going on in our society, whether it's some combination of mental health and economic precarity and a, a feeling of a lack of opportunity, outright courting in some instances by white national groups who are exploiting those kinds of feelings, um, the you know long history of race being used to divide people up and to blame for the problems that are caused by elites in this country. You know, are we ever going to get to a point where we solve these issues without addressing that broader underlying issue? I don't, I don't know.
0: I mean, we have a—some conservatives say it's, we have a more open society than a lot of these peer countries we're comparing to. We have a, a, a much less homogenous society. We have a society of greater tension between cultural and racial and religious and along all sorts of lines, and there's more conflict Uh,
1: Yeah, people say that, but I don't think that it is Well, that is something that separates the
0: U.S. from, Denmark or whatever.
1: I I really resist this argument that diversity necessarily means antipathy. That because there is racial diversity, like many countries, there's many different kinds of diversity. And there's, you know, the fact that you and I are sitting here, the idea that it's more difficult for us to get along because we're different races or different genders, I reject outright. I think that there are people who actively try to seed that reality and try to convince people of that reality. And it's our job as good citizens to push back against that. But I think it's a little bit of a cop-out when people say things like, well, America just has to deal with it because we're diverse. And in some ways that puts the onus on diversity as a negative quality. When no one sits there and says, well, you're from Massachusetts and you're from Texas, so you must be at each other's throat. Or you're a plumber and you're a, you know, oh, secretary, a so you must be at each other's of people throat. people from
0: Texas and people from Massachusetts being at each Well, there's a long
1: history of people in this country, Uh, more recent immigrants, white native-born immigrants, white native-born, black native-born people banding together for all sorts of really amazing labor efforts that were solidaristic. And some of the biggest pushback from the government, the first time bombs were dropped on a local population was because the people got together and rose up to protest labor and pay conditions at mines. And you see that when you see the the power of the blowback against those instances, when we do realize that our salvation comes from banding together with each other, it, it demonstrates how invested the system is in keeping us apart. And so I really, I don't want people to get so disaffected in a way that they believe that this is the natural status quo because this is just the cost of diversity. In fact, I'm sorry. I do believe that diversity isn't our strength and it's a, it's a massive op to try to convince us otherwise. And when you think otherwise, that's how you, you end up in these kinds of situations and we continue to pull apart from each other and argue against each other instead of coming together to try to find solutions. I'm open to genuinely anything at this point, Mm -hmm. but I am not open to the idea of, sitting on our laurels and not trying a single thing because we're so defeated.
0: Mm-hmm. But it is a, it's frustrating to hear people say, well, they don't have this problem in Europe. Why can't we be more like these countries? Well, these countries are, everybody looks the same. Everybody feels the same way. Everybody is incredib- has a long, like 100 year, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of year ancestry and connection to the national identity. I'm not, I'm not a you know, nationalist conservative who thinks this is the ideal state of a country and this is what we should like, deliberately try to foster. But if we're a little rough around the edges because we're different and we're more welcoming and and, and we're we're more conflict-based because of that, I am actually okay with that. And I think that might just be the way it is. Well, I
1: I don't think that there is a failure for Americans of different stripes to have a sense of national identity. What I do think is that there's some Americans who lay claim to a bigger sense of national identity than other Americans. And I talked about this in a radar a little bit last week. The irony of someone like Tucker Carlson... Talking about legacy Americans in a way that seems to suggest that someone like me, someone who looks like me, like looks like the people who were shot in the Buffalo grocery store, are not legacy Americans despite our legacy in this country being longer than many, many, many white immigrants suggests to me that the problem isn't the diversity, but people who are saying, I am more American than you because of race, because of these differences. It's not true. And so many Americans really are deeply invested. So many black Americans, so many brown Americans, so many Asian Americans are very deeply invested in what it means to be an American. And I'll talk a little bit about this more in my upcoming radar.
0: Yeah. Well, we wanted to, uh, before we close out here, we wanted to mention that the thread of victims shows Xavier Lopez, 10, Uzaya Garcia, 10, a fourth-grade teacher, Eva Moreles, who was shot reportedly trying to protect her students. Novaya Bravo died, was also in the fourth-grade class, and uh, you can see more pictures of the victims online. And apparently, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely horrific. Like, there are some parents right now who, have, you know, have not received confirmation, but obviously their child has not come back, so they they have every reason to expect their, their child uh, was killed but haven't received confirmation yet. And that, that just is a unbelievably gut-wrenching position to be in.
1: It's horrible. Two, it's horrible. Two days from the end of the school year, they've canceled classes, obviously, for the rest of the year. And um, it's, Pre- it's, it's yeah. horrible, yeah. Uh,
0: President Biden, of course, addressed the nation uh, on the tragedy last night. Here's what he had to say. We can do
2: so much more. We have to do more. Our prayer tonight is those parents lying in bed and trying to figure out, will I be able to sleep again? What do I say to my other children? What happens tomorrow? May God bless the loss of innocent life on this sad day. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name we're going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done?
1: Yeah, well, it's just a reminder that Democrats have the House and the Senate joe biden has been very clear that he does not believe in getting rid of the filibuster for any purpose including passing some pending gun legislation that has already passed the house and at a certain point i don't think it's appropriate to stand there and say what in god's name can be done can be done when you were the president of the united states and perhaps the most powerful person on the planet mm.
0: well i look forward to talking about this more with you during your radar stay tuned for more rising coming up next Brianna, what's on your radar?
1: Well, when most of us heard about the latest mass shooting that occurred yesterday, a cruel, violent, deeply tragic event in which 19 children were murdered and two teachers were murdered by a gunman uh, carrying a weapon and and crashing his car into the the side of a building, we experienced pain, horror, shock, relief, or perhaps anger. In contrast to that, former Vox columnist and blogger Matt Iglesias followed a different instinct. Matt Iglesias, former Vox columnist and blogger, and a parent, tweeted, for all its very real problems, one shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the contemporary United States of America is one of the best places to live in all of human history. And there's a reason tons of people of all kinds from all around the world clamor to move here. As the country struggles to understand the murder of elementary school children at school, a place they go to learn times tables and read Maniac McGee and trade lovingly packed lunch snacks, Matt Iglesias was quick to remind us that despite it all, America is one of the best places in the world to live. And one of the best places in the world to live we've had 27 school shootings in just the first five months of 2022. Now let's compare. Australia has experienced six since 1991. Brazil has had five since 2001. Germany has had only eight since 1913. Lithuania and Sweden have had one, the UK three, five in South Africa since 1994. And according to Matt, while those numbers might seem a good deal better than what we've experienced in the United States, again, 27 in 2022 alone so far, it's a good reminder that we shouldn't complain because, after all, America is one of the best places to live in all of human history. Now, I don't bring up Matt Iglesias' tweet because he's especially important, nor do I mention it in an effort to mete out some sort of punishment for a controversial, tasteless, attention-seeking take. It is obvious what he's doing, and the good citizens in his Twitter mentions have been thorough in explaining exactly why Iglesias is, per one of the kinder tweets I can read here, the worst. I bring it up because his rhetorical maneuver is not actually an unusual one. In fact, it's a troublingly common one. This time it's receiving what I think is a proportionate amount of blowback because most people understand that there is a time and place to brag about your country, and it's not while children's bodies are being identified by their parents hours after your country's 27th school shooting this year. But the idea that America's achievements justify its failures is a common trope deployed by those who thrive under a deeply unequal system and who want to leverage sincerely held pride in this country to make sure nothing ever changes for the better. To make sure nothing ever gets better for you and your children because they're just fine under the status quo. Now, I want to be clear. This is not an anti-American screed. Too many liberals get caught up in arguing against America's obvious benefits when I think most people have a natural affection for home, no matter how complicated our American family can be. I was born in Washington, D.C., right here in our nation's capital, to an American from Virginia and an American from Ohio. My paternal grandfather proudly worked on Navy boats despite being denied union work on account of his race, and my great-grandfather fought proudly for his freedom in the United Color Troops during the Civil War. My maternal great-grandfather came from a family, grandmother, rather, came from a family of sharecroppers in South Carolina who fled to the North in an effort to escape discrimination and racial violence and find opportunity She had four children, one of whom my grandmother became a registered nurse, and she had my mother who became a teacher who had me. My story is as American as apple pie and is marked with all of the opportunities available in this country, as well as all the cruelties it can inflict on people through no fault of their own, like healthcare failures, exploitative wages, and state-backed racial discrimination. And I don't struggle at all with allowing two truths to lie in my brain at once, that there are things about my country I love deeply And there are things about it that I feel is my patriotic duty to fight to change. When the Founding Fathers wrote the Constitution, they didn't high-five, chest bump, and declare it the best Constitution ever, or insist that America was perfect or unimpeachable. No, As I'm sure you're aware, the preamble asserts that the Constitution was established to promote a more perfect union. It implies that the progress of this country is never complete. It was an aspirational document, one that has been amended over time to abolish slavery, to extend voting rights, to formally enslaved people and to women, and to provide for due process rights. One of the things that I admire about this country is that aspirational spirit. Where would we be if people hadn't fought to make the world a better place for their children than it was for them? If the workers who struggled for workplace safety in mines in clothing factories and on farms had simply shrugged and said, At least we have it better than we did in Ireland or Poland, or than our native-born grandparents did. What if our forefathers and mothers had looked at the 40% of seniors that used to live in poverty prior to the Social Security Act of 1935, and said, hey, at least we're a global power. How can we complain? If they never fought for more perfect, how much less perfect would we be today? I don't think patriotism is resting on one's laurels, or gloating like kids with an unearned trophy over the accomplishments of your ancestors. I think it's working to make the country more perfect as the founding fathers intended. This belief, which I hold closely, is why I admit I was triggered by Iglesias' tweet. The idea of American superiority, American exceptionalism, isn't just used to justify why nothing can be done to bring America's gun violence rate in line with other similar countries. It's used as a response to questions about how to make the country more equal, how to help the poor, how to provide health care for millions of Americans who worry that cancer could cost them their homes. Pundits like Steven Crowder, Ben Shapiro, and Charlie Kirk have argued that America is the greatest country in the world as a way to cut off legitimate questions about how it could be improved. But of course, one doesn't cancel out the other. It's a logical fallacy. Believing America is great does not mean it's equally great for everyone or that it can't be made better. And the people who benefit most from this country at the expense of those who work the hardest and benefit the least know that. They also know that by capitalizing on sincere pride in country, they can evade their responsibility for holding this country back. It is perhaps too early to know exactly what kind of intervention would have prevented yesterday's shooting. But a quick look around the world shows us that things could certainly be different. It's difficult to ignore the correlation between the sheer volume of guns in this country and the totally out of proportion scale of gun violence. In states where guns are prevalent, suicide rates are higher. There are about 120 guns per every 100 Americans. The country with the next highest number of guns per person, the Falkland Islands, has 62 guns per person. The country with the third highest per capita gun ownership rate is Yemen, with about 53 guns per person. Consider that these are our bedfellows. It is also difficult to ignore the correlation between mass shooters and violence against women. According to a University of California law study, 80% of shooters had a history of domestic violence. And most killed a female relative or partner immediately before the mass shooting event. In this case, the the shooter first shot his grandmother before targeting the children. It's not clear, as of saying this now, how the shooter procured his gun or whether pending gun legislation would have helped. But popular legislation is being held up right now, and not by Democratic will, but by senators who take millions of donations from the NRA. Mitt Romney, the number one recipient of NRA money, has taken nearly $14 million dollars. Richard Burr of North Carolina has taken nearly 7 million. Roy Blunt of Missouri has taken over 4.5 million. And Marco Rubio of Florida has taken 3.3 million. It's fair to ask whether the decisions being made by these men are guided by the public interest or by corporate payoffs. Still, I don't know if pending legislation would have changed the outcome here, but it's worth noting that enforcement of current gun laws is likely not enough to change most outcomes. In 85% of the mass shootings that have occurred between 1982 and 2002, the weapons used were obtained legally. Only 16 incidents involved illegally obtained guns. I don't know what the but-for factors are behind this specific shooting, but I see people across the ideological spectrum, including Iglesias, using rhetorical tactics to shore up the status quo. A status quo that leads to America being an exceptional outlier in category kids killed at school. And so while we wait to learn more and before this becomes a conversation reduced to thoughts and prayers and partisan mudslinging, I simply want to issue a warning. Things can be better, even in the greatest country in the history of the world. And of those who suggest critiquing America is a sign of ingratitude, it's worth asking, why can't our children survive a day in the best country in the history of the world? So Robbie obviously there's a lot that we don't know right now but I was frustrated because what Iglesias's tweet conveyed was so similar to what I've seen and experienced in many arguments. I recently did a debate with Charlie Kirk where he insisted that because, you know, black people do better in America than other places or because I personally have succeeded in my life it means that things don't need to be improved for other people or that this country can't be even if more great. If it's being
0: used as a crutch to say things cannot be improved, I agree with you. However, I do think it is important, and maybe this was ill-timed, it's important for people to have perspective about the scale of our problems because they can seem, daunt, they can seem so bad that they inspire pessimism or even fatalism about how things are. But the fact is that we actually did decrease gun violence by like 50 percent from 1994 to 2010. We're not quite sure what we did right, but it it was done that on on a historical scale, we have actually substantially decreased violence. Uh, if you read Steven Pinker's book about the decline of violence over time, from the from the ancient period to the medieval period to the modern period, not just talking about in the American context. So none of that is to say, again, that we can't, come up with better policies or that we don't have the capacity to come up with better policies. Now, I do, you know, have some, uh, I I don't, I'm not very persuaded that a lot of these policies would have, it it is true that we have, we have more mass shootings than other countries. It is true. How we define, how mass shootings are defined ends up being a little tricky because the media is often going off of this database that counts any incident where four people were shot other than the shooter himself as a mass shooting. And that category does capture not just like what we saw yesterday, but also crime and Yeah, which is also violence. a problem.
1: I think a lot of different kinds of communities aren't- many, But many, many, many of, of those street.
0: cases do involve, like I was looking down that list, and right, uh, last week there was- I forget where it was. Right. It was a it was essentially a gang shoot. It was two teenagers on the streets and they had guns they're not supposed to have. They are not allowed to have these guns and they start fighting with, with each other. No one killed, but five people got shot. And that counts. That happens does happen a lot in this country. I don't know how to solve that with with more gun law, maybe more enforcement of our existing gun laws. But then that would result in more confrontations between these people and the police, which is also something we've said we don't want.
1: Well, no. It's the idea that we don't want confrontations that result in people's loss of life. That's unnecessary. We don't want people right. kneeling on folks' necks and suffocating them to death uh, in front of the entire country when they're already subdued. Right. Uh, I don't think that the outrage against police shootings is, you know, outrage over some policeman and a gun and well, open gunfight. But what about uh, Jacob? What about, uh, what about Jacob? But I wanna, What about the? I want to. I want to stick to this point because okay. the even if you take out all of the other mass shootings. We're talking about 27 school shootings, school shootings alone in the first five months of this year. And even, I, I understand that you're not attempting to do this, but the natural psychological effect, I think, when you talk about the fact that Um, you know, we're better than other countries. We've made, we've made improvements. Slavery is over. Brianna, why aren't you happy? That's not what you're saying, but that is Mm -hmm. what has been said to me. You know, you got to go to Harvard. Why aren't you happy? Doesn't this mean that all black people are successful? I think it's such an obvious fallacy that people are really taken up by. Um, It's frustrating because it forces a lot of people into the the position of denying the reality of progress, which I don't want to do. Of course, to the extent that crime, crime rates have lowered and there's some Sociological studies about whether or not there was a peak in the '90s as a result of lead in the pipes in the '70s and all these other kind of things that were kind of outside of judicial, uh, uh, criminal justice policy control. But regardless, we should obviously be celebrating those gains. But what I think causes people to become disaffected are folks like Steven Pinker. I'm so glad you brought him up because he is like ground zero for this kind of behavior. His entire rationale is to say, "Look, China, you know." We we don't live in mud huts anymore. Uh, we're not like stabbing each other with with, with you know uh, rocks or whatever. You know we're not living in a medieval right. environment where people are dying of uh, cholera and smallpox, other many people in the country and in, in the world still are. And therefore what? And therefore what? And I just want people to ask that question when someone says something that to you like that to you. Great. I'm glad we've improved, and therefore, what? How is that germane to the issue that I'm bringing up that is still deeply painful and concerning to me and my community and my family? That I want to be resolved. And I would also caution liberals that you don't have to pretend that progress hasn't happened. I see a lot of folks arguing that everything is exactly the same for minorities as it was a right. year, hundred years ago. Which we hear that is obviously with, not with true. With racism
0: in particular. But, but
1: but that shouldn't be the conversation. The conversation yeah. is not whether things have improved. It should be. Are we going to work together to continue to make them better? Because the status quo is obviously insufficient for so many people. And because we are the greatest country in the history of the world, do we have that confidence that we can make it even better?
0: I I can honestly state that I don't know. Look, the, the mass school shootings, are they're more prevalent here than in other countries, but they are a, such a small percentage of gun deaths. I don't know what policy can reduce something that is I, more happens more than we want it to happen, but is already quite rare, like 0.2% of gun deaths. I do. I accept that. I think if there were stricter gun control laws, uh, suicides would be rare. I'm persuaded by looking at the evidence that uh, the number of gun suicides we have could be meaningfully decreased if we had stricter gun laws. I am not, however, inclined to limit other people's access, people who use firearms safely and legally and are not a threat to others, to limit their access to them because other people misuse them and harm themselves with them.
1: Well, that seems fatalistic to me. If you believe there's no way to control for uh, an an obviously unwell, because no one who does something like this is well, but an unhinged 18-year-old getting access to a gun, crashing his car and shooting up an elementary school, we live in a society where we don't think plausibly we can keep guns from the hands of people like that. I think that's actually an indictment of the proliferation of guns and some of our more substantive rights in this country. Uh, And I'm not calling for that. I believe there is a way to keep people like that, keep all of these young, disaffected people from one, being young and disaffected, and also from accessing guns. And I don't think that we can have a conversation about how impossible that is, when there has been very little in the way of meaningful effort to actually try.
0: I mean, keeping young, disaffected, keeping teenagers, male teenagers, all of them male, from committing violence has been like the task of society for since as has long it, as society has existed has it
1: been the task of society because i can think of some things that could be really beneficial in terms of social programs keeping people occupied keeping people in summer school classes giving people the kinds of community supports that used to exist making sure that parents can stay in the home where we we're going to end up talking right. to well, a later we in this do this
0: all of those things and having done some of those we have reduced we have we reduced, we have we reduced do all the all amount of violence that this population which is responsible for the vast majority of violence in society does create well and we we could do more of it but i'm saying
1: we can do more of it that's the key having done a little bit of something usually something insufficient is not an excuse in my opinion to not want to try to do more and i think that that it's a common trap to fall in but in a a society society
0: with some basic respect for people's rights and civil liberties you will always have some amount of of inexplicable, unaccountable violence unless you live in a police state.
1: That's the other pivot, Robbie. It's the freedoms of the families that just lost their kids or the teachers, the families that just lost those teachers who were killed, the freedom for them to walk the streets and go to work and go to school, unimpacted by gun violence is never on the table. It's the people who are already benefiting society, and this was, this was the point of their radar. It's the people who generally live in a position where they don't have to deal with the cost of all of the negative freedoms that come from everyone else being able to live in a carte blanche, libertarian, laissez-faire world are never tabulated. And I think that those freedoms need to be protected as well.
0: All right, well, we will have more rising after this. Thank you for that, Brianna, and stay with us.
1: Last November, President Biden pushed what was to have been a, quote, major effort to curb gas prices.
0: Fast forward to today and Americans are facing two weeks of record high prices at the pump. Gas is up over 35 percent with no sign of relief. At gas stations, the Biden administration is now considering lifting gasoline environmental rules to lower fuel costs, according to Reuters. I see Brianna rolling her eyes, although I would love if we did that. Lift all those environmental rules. Um, our, our cameraman, Steve, just blamed me, saying it's, uh, this is a hex because I bought a car at uh, the very beginning of January, and this has all happened after this. So I don't know what I did, but there, there you go. You can blame Robbie.
1: I mean, look, at the end of the day, I'm sure if I Googled it, I could give you some huge number that represent the profits that the oil and gas companies are making. So the question isn't... You know, so the question is, you know, is there not at the end of the day, it's price squeezing that's happening. And let's not forget that this is largely because of the geopolitical conflicts that we have chosen to get into as a country overseas, pretending like it's all of these kind of local domestic factors or it's the result of Biden's sheer kind of will of force or just being a bad guy. Look, I don't care about Joe Biden, but let's actually talk about the root causes of these issues. We, you know, had great coverage by Ken Klippenstein over at The Intercept about, you know, the Saudi Arabia's unwillingness to do business with the Joe Biden because of having felt, um, shame, you know, uh, you know, uh, disre- disrespected before. How they won't help him keep bright gas prices down. How the conflict in Ukraine is affecting all of this and gas lines from Russia. Like this is the the issue. So the idea that we're going to use this as an excuse to address the paltry environmental policies that we have right now, it just feels like a misdirection and just an excuse to say, oh, let's all burn in a hellfire so that we can bring down the the gas. The Saudi
0: Saudi Arabia example is pretty frustrating because our, you know, playing nice with them and overlooking their horrific human rights records and everything else they're doing, we did that Solely for strategic reasons, so that in the event of a conflict with Russia, like the conflict we're having right now, they could let the oil flow and we wouldn't suffer pain. They are absolutely not doing that at all. Major, major foreign policy miscalculation, a bipartisan miscalculation that is embarrassing. So that that should be the end of that notion.
3: Well, so yeah. it's probably, you know, the the truth is in both sides on this one, in, in my opinion. I mean, absolutely, you bring up really great point points, Brianna, that this is, there's a lot that's going into this. But because we are so reliant on countries like Saudi Arabia, and then they're saying to us, yeah, you know, forget you guys, you know, we've been snubbed by you. And so we don't really want to play nice. That does kind of bring up more of the question of why are we not totally independent? Why are we not able to just rely on ourselves? Why do we have to rely on other countries and then they get to set the prices. So even with like the big oil companies right now making a fortune, they actually don't even have control over that. They're just reaping in the benefits from other from OPEC setting the prices. But why are we so reliant on on OPEC? So is there any is there any desire at all to say, well, you know what? Maybe we should be energy independent. And that energy independence can't be just looking forward to the future saying that we're going to go to green energy that might take however long I don't know. Uh, you know, versus like saying maybe we need to actually do something right now in the here and now in order to become oil independent. So that we yeah. don't care what OPEC does. Let's go to green energy, but let's let's actually open up some drilling
0: at some point in the meantime. Maybe well, look, it'll this, ease the ease the pain a little bit.
1: Well, please. if we, if we really care about easing the pain, you know, we could do things that other countries have done, like nationalize their energy sector, so that we don't have the profits being taken out and distributed to shareholders instead of being returned to people's pockets at the pump historically when countries around the world have chosen that democratically chosen to go ahead and do that oftentimes america sends in our uh, regime change instruments to make sure that that kind of intervention doesn't spread around the world yeah. bernie sanders talked about the green new deal as a um, domestic as, as a foreign policy tool for exactly this reason that we shouldn't have this foreign reliance on oil and when he brought this up in 2016 he was almost laughed off the stage the idea that these kinds of um, uh, issues would have that kind of geopolitical effect but here we are and so we can t- keep talking about how in the future in the future in the future we need to implement the policies the reality is that now is the time 10 20 years ago is the time and people who bring it up kind of as something that doesn't we're gonna work isn't going work right now because people are feeling the pain right now they're not actually committed to having the World War II style of ramping up that we need to so that 5, 10, 15 years from now, we're not talking about the next war that our children are dying in because we didn't have the commitment to do what we needed to do to get energy independence today.
3: Yeah, I. I mean, I agree with. I both. just threw my <laughs> pen because I was
0: so outraged <laughs> by your nationalized. Oh, wow. uh, oh, uh, comment. I Actually, dropped it, but uh, but I'm claim it. I, I can't imagine putting the federal government in greater control of production, distribution of oil would solve the problem. I think we'd probably have shortages like of baby formula instantly. But
1: that, that was a corporation that caused the shortage of the baby I mean, formula. I have to keep regulation, you, Robbie. It was, no, with it was a corporation deciding rules. to issue shares and distribute their profits to shareholders and do stock buybacks instead of fixing yeah. the machines no, that make our children's food. They're not allowed to have
0: more baby formula companies because it's tightly regulated and we can't import what we need.
1: No, it's an antitrust I, issue. They're not being prevented from having more. It's a regulatory
0: more... issue. It's always a regulatory issue. We can't. Why we can't build things, why we can't produce things, why we can't when, do things here at the federal government makes it illegal. When all you have is libertarianism, illegal.
1: everything looks like a regulatory issue.
0: Well, when all you have <laughs> is statism, everything looks like vast overreach. No, over there's over a,
1: of I, I offer a plurality of solutions and all of these Kim, you reality. really do get to
0: play the moderate today. This is so I really
3: refreshing. Do. I know, right? I I, I I agree with both sides. I agree. I agree that all of this has to be done. I, I mean, I I agree that we have to uh, take some of the profits away and nationalize some of the oil, and uh, you know, definitely need to do that. I mean, Alaska does it, so why can't the entire country the do State. it? Right, Red exactly. State. So, you know, I do think we need to be doing things like that. I do think that we need to also become more oil independent from other nations. That might mean opening up some drilling. But if we also did these other things, we might not need as much because we're able to bring down the the, the cost of gasoline. And, you know, there I just think it's a multi-pronged solution. All of these solutions are good ideas. I think if we did all of it, then we wouldn't have to do as much of all of it as well. Yeah. We could do a little of everything and that would maybe solve the problem. But the problem is, is that this discussion has become so politically polar that people can't stop and actually have a good conversation about it and say, "Yeah, I agree, and I agree." You know, instead, you guys are throwing pens at each other, you know, and that's like both <laughs> sides of the aisle doing that thing. That, acc- that was accidental. No workplace of violence here.
0: Don't sick OSHA on me. That's okay. Candy, Clovisar. Like. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: look.
0: Uh, I.
3: But yeah. So yeah. So, just just a quick reminder
1: that. Even opening up drilling takes time the same way that Green New Deal type type reforms takes time. Everything takes time. There's no quick fixes here. But I'm sure you all remember the Putin price hike. Mm. Well, the White House coined the phrase after Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. They tried again this week, but CNN's Jake Tapper wasn't having it. Let's take a listen.
4: Well, we're doing everything we can to try to bring those prices down. Uh, As you know, uh, this all emanates from uh, Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. Which took Russian all oil of off the market? Not all
0: of it. I mean, some of it. Yes.
1: I mean, I, I'm surprised that. I there's... like
0: Tapper. Sometimes he 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 does push back uh, against like ridiculous sometimes, talking yeah. points. Sometimes. Sorry, go ahead.
3: More so than the
5: others.
3: (laughs) I mean, yeah, more so than the others. And it is kind of impressive that CNN is now pushing back finally at the Biden administration. But how can you not at this point? Everything's falling apart. At this point, you can't just continue to go on and say, oh, everything's like hunky dory and everything's Putin's problem. No, we actually live in the United States. I don't know why we give Putin that much power. You know, The idea that that man has that much power over our own nation and our own economy seems, I mean, at this point it is comical. You just can't blame it on him.
1: Well, the issue with Putin's price hike is pretending like America didn't have any choice decision making in escalating the conflict the way it does did and uh, continuing the conflict by providing weapons the way it has done right and also right. the idea that having created that or you know contributed to the situation that's ongoing there that you therefore don't have a responsibility to do what you can do what is in your control domestically that I think is where I would push back and I'm not well, sure what Jake Tapper said after that but I would I'd like to see that kind of substantive commentary
3: And it also just ignores the fact that this was going on. Inflation was happening prior to Russia invading Ukraine. This is not a sudden problem that, oh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, suddenly we started getting inflation. We were having runaway inflation prior to this point. Remember when they said it was transitory? And then suddenly they realized, oh, it's not transitory. And then luckily Russia invades Ukraine. And they could say, oh, no, it was Russia. Russia did it. Yeah, (laughs) it's COVID. It's, It's the
1: supply chain issues. people understand how supply and demand works, except for some reason when it comes to supply chain issues, COVID, and the fact that we're just not getting the goods that we've offshored to the rest of the world. We're just not getting the goods that we used to get in the time that we used to get. And because we, again, corporations decided not to pay for storage units in the United States so that we could have stockpiles of essential needs, decided not to build things and make things in America in a way that could give American people jobs instead of offshore to places where they can exploit the the labor conditions overseas. Now consumers are paying the price. And and if you listen to some of the early commentary on this, by the way, from 2020, you had these places like NPR, these liberal radios, blaming consumers for the fact that, oh, they just want cheap goods. That's why we had to do all of this, as though it wasn't always about profits being distributed to the elites in this country. And that's why we had this enormous gap between what the American Worker Ways uh, makes and what the CEO makes. That is something like 10 times more extreme than it was 40, 50 years ago when we actually made things here in our own country. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yes, indeed. I agree. Well, up next, we'll discuss the broader implications of yesterday's uh, tragic killing of elementary school students and the debate around gun reform with our rising panel. Stick around for that.
2: We can do so much more. We have to do more. Our prayer tonight is those parents lying in bed and trying to figure out Will I be able to sleep again? What do I say to my other children? What happens tomorrow? May God bless the loss of innocent life on this sad day. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done?
1: That was president biden last night in an address to the nation over the horrific shooting at rob elementary in uvalde texas in response journalist jordan cheriton rebuked biden over his stance on the filibuster which progressives believe could help to pass stricter stricter gun control laws he wasn't the only one admonishing lawmakers on twitter some revealed that the nra financial contributions to politicians who were treating out condolences were significant and journalist david sirota made this point quote hours after a school massacre the democratic party leadership won its campaign to reelect an nra acolyte
0: the tragedy in texas is just the latest in a string of 27 school shootings this year alone adds to the more than 200 mass shootings in 2022 according to npr it's the first time in decades that firearms are the leading cause of death in children our rising panel is here to weigh in tim black is host of the tim black show and pause with Tim Black. And Amy Tarkanian is a Republican strategist and former chairwoman of the Nevada GOP. Welcome to both. Good
6: morning. Good morning. Good
0: morning. Uh, Tim, we'll start with you. You know, what are your uh, thoughts at this point as we come to grips with this just awful, awful, awful events?
5: Yeah, it's an awful situation. I mean, here we are again. It's like Groundhog's Day all over again. And we got Joe Biden giving us the same old rhetoric. You know, and, and look, I'm, I'm, I do not believe that there's anyone out there that doesn't feel moved by the tragedy. But we have to get beyond being moved. And I feel like a broken record saying this. Feel like I'm back in the '90s. Like I'm a special DJ coming in to fill in or something here. I know it just Elder, Elba is a good is a good DJ. We can cut and scratch. But mm-hmm. uh, people are tired of hearing that Johnson, and it's not it's not making us any safer, as you pointed out. Uh, Twenty was it 212 mass shootings. So far in 2020, we're on, we're on record right now. We're on pace right now to do our usual high numbers in the deaf department with guns.
1: Yeah, Amy, is this a tipping point? I mean, is that too much to hope for when you look at the millions of dollars that are taken by uh, some of the most um, well-paid uh, Uh, Republicans from the NRA, when you look at the power of the gun lobby, the cultural power that exists among conservatives with respect to guns, you know, is it possible that this event, if any event was going to finally turn the tide and make it a political liability for Republicans and Democrats not to join together and act on this? Is this it?
6: No, I don't believe so. But I think that this is a good opportunity to talk about the powers of uh, these big major lobbying groups like the NRA i mean you can lump in uh, you can lump in pharmaceutical lobbyists you can lump in Planned Parenthood i mean there are Numerous organizations that have immense power and it's it's dealing with financial power. It's dealing primarily and it deals also with a grading system that goes out to all of their members who then also contribute. And, uh, you know, you can say Republicans. Um, do receive the most at this point, but Democrats take money as well. And I know that it has slowed down from the donations that have been doled out by the NRA over the, the past years. But, you know, I'm from Nevada and former Senator Harry Reid, he had an A with the NRA and our current Governor Sisolak, who's a Democrat, also has an A with the NRA. So, you know, I think we need to really take a step back and and maybe start to focus heavily on what's going on at home what's going on with our children what's going on uh, you know behind closed doors because we live me and my family we live in in a smaller community but it is heavy heavy pro second amendment and I guarantee you almost all of my neighbors have weapons and I feel incredibly safe because they are responsible
0: yeah. I mean, Tim, I, I think the good point there is that there does not seem to be, the polls tend to, to uh, bear this out, not tremendous political will to do something. And it, because there isn't enough support, you, you do have uh, gun-supporting Democrats as well, there isn't tremendous support among the public for really sweeping changes across the country to American gun laws, and thus it doesn't get done.
5: I think I, I beg to differ, brother. I think there is a consensus. I think the overwhelming majority of Americans do want some type of gun reform. The problem is, what kind of gun reform are we talking about? I heard Amy earlier saying uh, that this is something that's on both sides. This, this is really a Republican issue, Amy. I'm sorry. Look, H.R. Mm-hmm. 8 was passed last year. It's the Bipartisan Background Check Act. Uh, it, started, it started in the Senate. It's in the Senate right right now. They won't even bring it to a vote. Uh, They overwhelmingly supported it, Republicans and Democrats, in the House. So this would just make it so if you give a gun to a friend as a private owner, that would still have to go through a background check. Now, this would not have prevented probably either one of the shootings uh, yesterday or 10 days ago in Buffalo, New York, but but we would be shaving the numbers, and that's what we have to focus on. Eight out of 10 murders in America are committed using guns. So the common denominator is gun, and we need to deal with that, and that's that's due to corruption in our politics, the money in the system. As with anything else that we want, there is a group of people with a a trail of load of cash trying not to make that change happen. Any change you want, there's a lobbyist on the other end. I believe
6: that the shooter in, in the recent one, uh, prior to yesterday, actually did pass a background check and it didn't stop that individual. And we still don't know how this individual, this 18-year-old, was able to get the gun that he used. And so, you know, we're now jumping to conclusions, which is also a problem in a Groundhog Day event. Um, I have unfortunately had to deal with a scenario with a young individual who was in junior high at the time that was being heavily medicated by the wrong medication. And his parents just choose to turn a blind eye, moved him to four schools before moving him finally out of the private school system because no one else would take him at that point to a public school. But guess what? So when he stopped Uh, posting pictures of guns that his mom and dad had in, in the home that now they have to put in a safe. And I don't know why they didn't have it in a safe at the time, but then the son then chose to go to dad's bow and arrow and, and, harass people in the neighborhood. Then after that was taken away, he chose to use kitchen knives. And he also cut himself in front of Mm. a bunch of neighborhood kids during trick-or-treating. So there is a will, there is a way to do damage. And I think that's where we have to start addressing the problems is what is going on behind closed doors and why aren't we addressing it we could sit there and talk about we're all in this together with covid till we're blue in the face and put out all of these wonderful uh announcements on on how to help one another and to cover your mouth why aren't we trying to to address mental health
1: in conjunction with making sure that there's gun safety well, Amy, what would you like to see done with respect to mental health? I mean, I mean, the situation you described seems like one where the parents did thankfully lock up their guns. And as a consequence, although the child tried to cause harm, that harm was limited and constrained by the power of the weapons that he has that had at his disposal. But what is the underlying solution that you see for the mental health crisis? Is it, is it extending some kind of uh, health care to all through a Medicare for all style system? I mean, what do you have in mind if the issue really is at home?
6: I feel like there are a lot of parents right now that are overwhelmed and they're not sure what resources are available to them. And I think that, you know, here in Nevada, unfortunately, we've had to make some major cutbacks in the medical health uh, industry, which is unfortunate. And we don't have facilities, especially for young people. There's not enough beds. There's not enough uh, doctors. There's not enough therapists to go around. And so these parents... You know, pretty much in, in this same scenario, they were just going to work and hoping that their son would stay home uh, when he got home from school and behave like that, like a normal person. But I would find him roaming around the neighborhood, you know, mm. like a deer in headlights because he was in the wrong medication. And the parents just didn't know how to take care of him.
5: Oh, mm. Amy, Wow, wow. Amy, are we talking about one isolated incident concerning you and your neighborhood? I mean, we're losing the thread right now. Look, we have 40,000 uh, shootings. No, that's going 40, to be one
6: amongst, I'm sure, thousands of parents who are well, you overwhelmed just right now with their children and knowing respect, how to handle their their situation, especially coming out of COVID. If you have kids like I do, I respect, witnessed families we're not
0: talking fell apart because COVID. of we're mental health.
5: What? Amy, we're let's, let's about guns, him uh, Let's him respond now.
0: Guns.
5: guns, we're talking about guns, Amy. Let's get back to the gun part yeah. where 8 out of 10 murders are committed with guns. So we got to look at guns. I mean, I'd rather not look at guns, but we got to look at guns. I mean, if it eight, eight, 8 out of 10 murders were caused by tr- semi-trucks. We'd be looking at semi-trucks. So we got to look at guns and how people access them. And we know not one thing will be uh, the defining moment that kills or gets rid of all shootings. But we have to trim around the edges, Amy. These are lives that we're talking about. So, so how background are you checks?
6: going to stop those who get the guns illegally from creating these atrocious crimes?
5: are uh, not. Illegally? And well, so well, I would like to have my
6: CTW... You asked me a question. You asked ask me a
5: question, I'd like to answer you. I, I would say we, I, I agree with you. We do need mental health. We need mental health care. It's good to hear that we have a Republican that wants universal health care. All right, guys, this us just form hands. let just do a kumbaya. This is great. So let's get you out here. You and I can work together on giving us medical care. You know, Biden said he has just left a foreign country, and they, they have mental, people with mental health problems. Why don't they have as many shootings? I agree with him. The problem is we don't have free access. So car, let's get back car, cra-
6: nice
0: car crashes do kill a lot of people, though, by the way. You mentioned... You yeah. said earlier, truck crash. There are. It's. It's. I think it was comparable for most. And now I think it might be more gun deaths than well, car deaths. Well, now
1: the, the number one the cause of death for kids is yeah. is gun death. So I think there does need to be have be a conversation about that. Uh,
0: well, so we wanted to uh, get to amid the heated debate over gun violence in the U.S. Uh, journalist, a friend of the show, Zay Jelani, tweeted that most gun deaths are actually suicides, not homicides, which is true. And most gun homicides are with handguns, not rifles. Gun homicides are concentrated uh, in neighborhoods more so than entire cities, and gun homicides have gone up since summer 2020. Media has a role to play in settling settling facts, setting facts in contentious uh, debates, and I think that that is useful information to keep in mind because the the, ma- the mass school shootings, because uh, you know innocent children being blown away, it's it's it captures our our attention and it, and it should, but is not actually representative of the kind of 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 the the common case of gun violence in the country, which is either suicides or one-off murders uh, with handguns, often related to crime or domestic abuse or something else, um, which, which is maybe a, a more—it's uh, a, a, a different problem. I don't know if it's more addressable or less addressable than, than what we see uh, with something like this. I, what, what are your thoughts on that, Amy?
6: Um, Well, I I think that, yes, um, once again, I'll go back to the beginnings of COVID. We did see an uptick in depression amongst younger people, not just in adults, but in younger people. And so I know, I know several families who have had to reach out and find therapists. And at the time, there was no therapist that would see you face to face because of, you know, social distancing. And so they were trying to find help on telehealth. Um, I know numbers of parents who were trying to find places to send their kids to go and get the help that they needed because depression is real and it was heavy and they didn't know how how to cope um, without going throughout their regular day-to-day lives at you know not being amongst their friends their peers their schools their sports and it is a problem and I know that there have been a number of of children who have attempted suicide, whether if that was with a knife or a gun, it is real. Now, in order to stop these school shootings, I think we do need to take a hard look at where is the money being spent. I think really we need to uh, you know, focus on the, the single point entry where you buzz people in. I mean, I'm not allowed to step on my son's campus in, unless I've been given permission, even just to drop him off and pick him up.
1: I'm not allowed to pass the gates. And, I, and I'm grateful for that. Well, Amy, in this case, the gunman crashed his car into uh, you know, the side of the building or some nearby object and was confronted by law enforcement and forced his way into the school, regardless of all of those interventions being in place. So I'm not sure if that would help. Tim, I wanna give Did you the last word here. Did that have
6: all of that? I'm not aware that that school had that.
5: In 2019 uh, and 2018, before pre-COVID, there were 24 school shootings. So it's not just COVID. It's not, you know, you know, cabin fever, kids having, or depression that's leading them to this. It's also access to guns. It's also a gun culture. We got to talk about the, that there are people that feel like they aren't, they aren't manly or they're not, you know, they're not macho if they don't have a gun. So it's a lot to look at. And I think it's going to take a comprehensive look at all areas in order to bring down those numbers. We're talking about lives. Oh, good and discussion. I agree
6: with that, Tim. I agree with that.
0: Perfect. Good discussion. Thank you so much, Tim, Amy, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.
1: White House officials insist that U.S. policy on Taiwan has not changed. This, despite President Biden's unambiguous commitment to intervene militarily, should China attempt to invade the island. Let's watch those comments back
6: are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are.
2: That's the commitment we made. That's a commitment we made. We are not – look, here's the situation. We agree with a one-China policy. we signed on to it, and all the attendant agreements made from there. But the idea that, that it can be taken by force just taken by force is just not it's just not appropriate. It will dislocate the entire region, and be another action similar to what happened in in uh, in Ukraine. And so it's a it's a burden that is even stronger.
0: Friend of the show, retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis cautioned against such strategy in a new op-ed for 1945 asking, quote, why should American soldiers die for Taiwan? It is time U.S. opinion leaders and government officials stop being so eager to offer up American troops to go into harm's way for the benefit of another country and start being concerned for the welfare of our troops' lives. Senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis joins us now to expand. Welcome back.
4: Thanks for having me back. Always love to be on your show.
0: Yeah, we love hearing from you. So, I thought the kind of US policy with respect to Taiwan is was sort of this strategic ambiguity. Obviously, we want to discourage China from taking any action, but we're not we don't actually want to commit to defending Taiwan because that would be a horrific mess of epic proportions uh you know what is so was biden signaling a a stronger commitment in that kind of not well thought out remark that he made
4: well i mean the, the hope is that it's not a well thought out remark because the the more troubling concern is that it is a thought out remark uh, thought out remark because he did say that's the commitment we've made he, and the first thing that entered my mind is what commitment are you talking about because he's definitely not talking about the The What we all know is the Taiwan Relations Act, which we have had for decades, where we say we'll help Taiwan defend themselves. But you have to wonder, was anything agreed to behind the scenes that we don't even know about yet? Because he unambiguously said that, yes, unlike the previous part of that, before that clip you showed, they said, hey, you didn't get involved militarily in Ukraine. Would you do it in this situation in Taiwan? And he unambiguously said, yes, we would get involved militarily, which which is, of course, something we don't have an agreement to do. There is no treaty alliance between the United States and Taiwan, so there's nothing that would obligate us to do that. But there's another issue that I really want to point out, besides the obvious that it would be catastrophic for our interest, is that the president does not have the unilateral authority to take America to war against China over Taiwan issues. The, both the Constitution and the 1973 War Powers Act are unambiguous that unless the U.S. is attacked or about to be attacked, the president cannot take us to war. That's what only the Congress can do in Article 1, and we need to make sure we're clear on that, and we, I need to hope that the president's clear on that, that he can't obligate us to go to war on his own.
1: Yeah, what's so curious about this is that you know the washington post has reported that this isn't the first time biden has said even this apparently there were a couple of instances last year where he made similar comments it seems as though the fact that we are now in the conflict in ukraine involved in that conflict that the the different kind of gloss is shed on the implications of, of that kind of remark it's even more curious, given that apparently back in two thousand and one, when Bush two made a similar kind of remark, it was Joe Biden who pushed back and said that that language is too strong. We have to be careful about our commitments. Do you think there is a principled shift here that's happening with Joe Biden, or this is, you know, a, I don't know, a senior moments or or something else that's going well, on here?
4: Well, you're right, because both last August and October. Uh, the president made similar, nearly categorical comments, implying that we would get involved militarily against China. So you can't say that it's a, a you know a, a gaffe like a lot of people are saying, or it's a mis- misstatement. I mean, it's pretty consistent that he's saying that, which implies that's his aspiration or that's his desire, which of course is troubling because look, man, with what's going on in in Russia and in Ukraine and how we're just right on the edge of that already and. You know, any miscalculation could stumble us into a, into the actual war against a nuclear-powered country. Now that we're talking about the possibility of doing it here in the China-Taiwan issue against another nuclear power, we cannot keep playing around with the possibility of getting our country sucked into two wars that either one of which could go nuclear. That's just something we need to just move away from because we have to ultimately— be responsible for our security. The president needs to defend American interest and make sure our country doesn't get sucked into a war. As much as we hate what's going on in, in you know in, in Ukraine and potentially in Taiwan, we have to make sure our country doesn't get drawn into a war so that we're the ones who are suffering.
0: Right. What would an actual effort, if if, if it's what Biden said and we're going to defend Taiwan in the case they got attacked by China, what what would that even look like? Because we don't it's a it's a more it would be a more tactically difficult situation I imagine than than Ukraine which is, is surrounded by you know many uh, there there are allies of ours in that part of the region that you know, we are close allies with how, how would we even go about you know crossing the the Pacific Ocean to do this?
4: Yeah, that, I actually wrote in an extensive two part series also in 1945 discussing exactly that issue and how just profoundly difficult it would be for the United States. And one of the conclusions that's manifestly made clear is that though the United States and China, when you look at the balance of the two nations together, still favors the United States pretty significantly in many categories, in the Taiwan Straits area, China has almost all of the tactical advantages. Because if they ever launch an attack, they'll already be on a war footing. They'll have prepared everything. They'll have had logistics, everything stored up but it'll be a surprise to us and so we won't be on a war footing and to try from flat-footed to try to engage uh china who's ready for war in their area and they're already prepared to attack us in both the water the sea and on the land uh it would be a catastrophic loss for us because we probably wouldn't even prevent taiwan from being taken but would lose god only knows how many ships and planes and troops in the process Mm.
1: it it seems like biden must know this. And to your point, the fact that he's made these statements repeatedly suggests that it's no gap. So I'm wondering if there could be some potential, you know, political or strategic motivation for him to be making these kinds of statements. Is there anything that comes to mind for you that would make sense as to why he would continue to make these sorts of commitments despite what a disa- what disastrous uh, consequences could accrue? Well,
4: what I, what I suspect is that, that he's probably thinking... I'm just going to make these statements to make China think that we would come in as an attempt to deter them. But I think that the probably the more realistic probability is that's going to inspire them to act, not to deter them, because they may think, okay, if the United States is going to come to Taiwan's aid at some point, let's move quicker rather than later before they get a chance to build up forces. Because, you know, there's this uh, Pacific Threat Initiative and, and several other things where the Specific Command wants, you know, six to 10 billion more dollars to add on top of what they're doing so that we can build up forces and all this. So you can see that China could go, OK, before that happens, before you get the potential to actually strike us more, we're going to move earlier. So I think that making these kinds of claims does not deter China. If anything, it makes it war more likely.
0: Hmm. Well, Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for joining us. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
3: Kim, what's on your radar? Well, maybe you've been hearing something about a WHO treaty or have seen the hashtag StopTheTreaty trending on social media. Maybe you read this article in The Washington Post claiming the conspiracy theorists are at it again. Figures such as Russell Brand, former Congresswoman Michelle Bachmann, and even Senator Marco Rubio had been making the rounds popularizing an idea that the WHO technocrats would have the ability to override the US Constitution thwart our democracy and gain control over our nation's health policy. That these unelected globalists would be in charge of our nation's pandemic response from here on out. Get ready for more lockdowns, vaccine passports, mandatory contact tracing, and quarantine zones imposed on us by elites sitting in Geneva with the US government left neutered, unable to save us from this medical tyranny." Okay so that all sounds really scary so what does all of this mean and what's the truth about what's actually happening well this week the 75th world health assembly is being held in geneva switzerland now the world health assembly is the governing body of the who it's made up of appointed delegates from pretty much every recognized country in the world these delegates get together to discuss concerns and ideas come up with solutions and sometimes vote on agendas One thing that has obviously come up is the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Many countries feel like the pandemic wasn't handled properly by other countries. And because of this, there's a desire amongst some to amend the International Health Regulations. The International Health Regulations is a legally binding agreement by the WHO member nations that directs countries on what they need to do in the event of a possible public health crisis. The idea is to spot potential events and alert the WHO and other countries of these events. The IHR agreement, which was first crafted in 1969 and last amended in 2005, outlines each member nation's responsibilities. Now, I say it's legally binding, but first of all, the WHO has no police power. If a country doesn't comply, there isn't much anyone can do. Secondly, the current version of the agreement is soft in its language. It doesn't say anything about what a country must do. It instead uses language that suggests what a country should do. So when a country doesn't what doesn't do what is suggested, like China, for example, not coming forward with its information about COVID-19, there isn't anything anyone can do except complain. There's no enforcement mechanism to the IHR agreement. Now, this is what the WHO wants to change. The WHO wants some sort of police power. They say they need to be armed with some ability to motivate non-compliant countries. However, countries like the US don't really want to give the WHO any such power. After all, the US could end up on the list of countries not adhering to the contract. Plus, can you trust the WHO? Will they go after all equally or will they favor countries that donate more to their organization over others? Will they use their police power strictly by the book Or will they use it at the behest of some of their largest private donors, like Bill Gates, to enforce their personal agendas? After all, Bill Gates is the WHO's second largest donor, the first being the United States. But Gavi, the vaccine organization, is also a very large donor to the WHO, and Bill Gates is a massive donor to Gavi. The combined donations from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Gavi to the WHO are actually larger than what the U.S. gives, making Bill Gates theoretically the number one donor to the WHO. Now, one billionaire has a disproportionate amount of influence over global health. Should should he also have a disproportionate amount of influence over an organization that is then given police power to go after non-compliant countries? The U.S. has other ideas. The U.S. has given the WHO a set of proposed amendments to the IHR The thing that stands out is the U.S. suggests changing any sort of non-binding suggestive language, words like consult or recommend, with more binding words like must and shall. So the document, if adopted to the U.S.'s suggestions would sound much more binding. Now, it's important to note that there is nothing about pandemic responses like lockdowns, quarantines, or vaccines in the current IHR or the proposed amendments. The language is vague. And it gives a lot of power to the WHO to decide on how events should be handled. But again, the current language says the WHO will make suggestions and will consult with member states. The new language would be more binding. It would be particularly binding if the WHO also has police power. But again, countries like the U.S. don't want to grant it. So. Then, you know, is the U.S. government actually the good guys in all of this? If they don't want to grant the globalist technocrats at the WHO police power, are we being protected by our guys? Well, yes and no. Yes, the U.S. has no interest in giving any entity, especially one not directly controlled by the U.S. government itself, any sort of police power. Remember all of the accusations that the WHO was controlled by China? So after all, Taiwan, for example, is not a recognized country to the WHO because China doesn't want them to be. But the U.S. is calling for much harsher language to be adopted into the IHR. Now, why would the government do that if they don't intend to give the WHO police power? Well, because the U.S. intends to use the agreement as a reason to sanction or go after countries in other ways, countries who are deemed to be non-compliant. But of course, you can bet that the only countries seeing any sort of consequences will be those not friendly to the U.S. So nothing is being decided on this week. The Assembly is discussing and might agree on some points, but likely won't on others. The process to adopt a newly amended IHR actually takes years. Now, they expect the new agreement won't be voted on until sometime in 2024, But people are right to sound the alarm about this. There is a push by the WHO to gain police power over pandemic responses. And right now it's just an idea. But sometimes ideas become reality, especially if those ideas are supported by very wealthy donors who can use their money to sway votes from assembly members. Also, if you're not a U.S. citizen, you could have reason to fear the U.S. will weaponize public health as a way to go after enemy nations. We've seen this done in the name of human rights and in the name of climate change. It stands to reason it will also happen in the name of public health. And if the U.S. isn't the one doing it, then another powerful nation like China might. So that is what's really kind of going on right now with this whole like stop the treaty and the treaty that is being discussed, the amendments. Um, Some countries have come forward, like Brazil, saying we're not signing this thing. And, you know, Brazil has kind of taken that tone uh, about other treaties because they do feel like powerful, larger countries often use these sorts of you know, like climate change, human rights, to go after countries to harm them, to limit them, to sanction them, using it more as a bully tactic to get their way into and to remain on top and to remain powerful rather than actually doing it for the benefit of the global, you know, greater good. So I you know, even though right now no one's gonna vote on anything and this is something that's just in discussion that is going to be voted on later, I do think it's right for people to sound the alarm and say, hey, wait a minute, we're not so like keen on what some of these things are and what what some of the ideas are i mean it'll be too late once they actually draft it and they're ready to vote in 2024 on this to actually adopt it now would be the time to start saying i don't know how fair this thing is do we really want to give the who police power what kind of police power would they be granted And, and and again it's vague over you know because it doesn't specify what you would have to do as a country or not have to do it would be just up to the discretion of the who I don't know anybody on either side of the aisle that honestly should be okay with that whether you you know if, if you're for example really worried about China and the influence of China I don't know if you'd want to grant WHO police power when they do seem to be so exactly. heavily influenced by China right
0: Exactly yeah so that, there's a lot bingo. like in here <laughs> Yeah
3: yeah so that so that's kind of what's going on and um,
0: yeah that would that yeah. would be my exact response to it we don't want to be influenced uh, by China in that regard and also uh, you know domestically there there's so much a selective support for, you know, internationalism and and globalism when it comes to public health rules, you know, there's so much, oh, well, you know, they're doing everything better everywhere else. But actually, the World Health Organization was far more uh, less restrictive on masks for children than our CDC was. But that didn't. so, So even though that was the case, that didn't cause our health officials to go, oh, well, we need to do what the WHO does. Right. They didn't care. Right. So they only care if it's like more restrictive.
3: Well, right, and China also didn't care what the WHO said, which is why the U.S. is now right. drafting language. So the U.S. is actually... The WHO
0: was doing cover for them.
3: <laughs> right. right. So doing it's, cover it's really for clear. The, the, the safety, the lab safety. Exactly, exactly. So it's really clear to me that the, the U.S.'s amendments to this IHR in my opinion, it's just my opinion, but it looks like they're drafting this to be harsher in order to actually go after China. So the U.S. is wanting to, because China is where a lot of these viruses crop up. So the U.S. looks like they're wanting to utilize public health policy as a way to then go after China, sanction China. Uh, You know, whether you think that's right or wrong, that is what it looks like the U.S. is wanting to do. On the flip side, the WHO is asking for the police power The U.S. is saying, I don't know if I want to give that to you because it could be used in the reverse. And so the WHO is asking for police power. And that then raises concerns because the WHO is we don't know who exactly influences WHO. We have some good ideas. So Bill Gates absolutely does have a lot of influence over the WHO. That's been reported on for years. A disproportionate amount of their agenda is Bill Gates' agenda because it's heavily funded by him. So what he wants done, like polio eradication, that's what they do. So then people wonder, you know, do we really want, you know, if if Bill Gates doesn't get his agenda that, you know, like if if countries aren't compliant with vaccination programs like he wants, could then the WHO go after them because he wants them to? You know, so there's a lot, I think, to be worried about. What do you think, Brie?
1: Is there any risk, I'm, I'm curious, of they're actually promulgating police power? What does that look like? They're going to hire, what, like a uh, troop recruit people from countries that look like UN peacekeeping troops. That seems like a really significant undertaking. Is that realistically something that is even in the mind's eye at this point?
3: I, I, that's not actually in the discussion uh, at this point. But of course, anything goes, right? Because it's just a discussion. So they could throw out anything. But right now, the WHO is asking for more power, like more like the power to sanction and to harm countries financially or to withhold certain you know to say well we're going to withhold you know xyz things from you collectively so the who would be able to like mandate the sanctioning that then the countries would have to adhere to or mandate you know the withholding of certain services or resources because the country's deemed non-compliant i don't know how you would give the who any sort of police power i think what's more likely is what the us is actually asking for for a number of reasons But that being that then the bigger, more powerful countries would then be the enforcers, essentially. And it's the same thing like what we see with climate change, for example, similar tactics being used. Uh, But again, are they going to use it on their friends or just their enemies?
1: Yeah, it's frustrating with these international treaties. Uh, So many of them, America hand rings about and moralizes about, but doesn't itself belong to, won't sign on to the Universal Declaration for the Rights of the Child, because we don't guarantee some basic human rights for children in this country. We're a country uh, solo among its peers in terms of our own willingness to extend basic uh, health care, universal health care access, you know, we're the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And yet, uh, you, whether you live or die in this country depends on how much money is in your bank account. And so it does feel very rich. The, to kind of lean on international treaties as a way to shame, embarrass, or sanction other places around the world. I'm not sure, you know, how likely it is that this is going to happen or, or come down the pike, but it certainly is an interesting thought experiment to shed light on the hypocrisy of our own country.
3: Yeah, and you know, and I do want to also point out that right now, you know, I know a lot of people in the United States are saying, "Hey, this is going to override our sovereignty and override our democracy." It's not as likely when you're the most powerful country in the world, right? The power country gets to actually be the ones sanctioning and, and going after other countries. But that dynamic could flip at any time. I mean, it could become very quickly that China becomes the, the, the greatest world power. And if that's the case, then they, were th- they would be the ones that would have the policing power, essentially, because they're the big right. bad bully that gets to use it. So you always have to be careful, you know, when you're trying to get your own power, who else is going to use it against well, you?
0: Yeah. Well, and even if it's, Right. Even if it's exactly as you just said, that this is you know so controlled by we're the power, so it's controlled by us. So we have less to fear. Well, like who's the we in that, right, that, that our U.S. Right. government is dictating that. But they don't necessarily represent the, the wishes people. of, of right. me or you or other people who have different ideas about COVID and some of the public health measures that have been taken. So that should be cold, com- uh, com- cold comfort, even without the additional right. wrinkle that you just mentioned which is also yeah. uh,
3: a good Could one. Be, yeah. Could be, you know, big money interests like you, yeah. you know, that exactly. So yeah. it, there's a lot to be concerned about granting more police power to anybody, I think is always something to be very concerned about.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you for that Kim, and we'll be back with more rising right after this.
3: Pfizer said Monday that its three-shot vaccine regimen was 80% effective in kids six months to four years old. This is according to an early analysis of the trial. And this comes as children ages 5 to 11 are now eligible for a COVID booster. On Thursday, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention cleared kids to receive booster shots of the pfizer Biotech COVID-19 vaccine. This comes as COVID cases are on the rise across the U.S., specifically the Omicron subvariant BA2. In
0: February, researchers from the New York State Health Department reported that two doses of the Pfizer vaccine offered 12% protection against infection for children 5 to 11 during the Omicron wave, though the CDC found it did still protect against severe illness. And of course, severe illness is, you know, is the important thing we're trying to prevent against. Clearly the vaccines have even if they have Maybe they're they're protective for a short while or they, they offer some protection against infection they They are not at all even close to offering the sort of broad based long lasting protection uh, that we hoped from protection from infection, but they still do you know prevent the most vulnerable from having severe disease and and that's great. but children are not really in the severe disease category to begin with unless they have other uh, health issues, uh, severe obesity, things of that nature and I, I absolutely think Families should be able to make that choice, you know, for their kids with their kids consultation for themselves. But it's just I, I, I certainly don't want to see any mandates on children. I think it'd be insane for schools to require this sort of thing for young kids with, you know, absent much evidence that they're significantly at risk.
3: Well, and that's what they do plan to do. They do plan to use this to mandate. That's crazy. We're already seeing that. We're seeing that even for preschools. They're waiting for the vaccine to come out for young children so that they can then mandate it for the, for the kids going into preschool. My biggest issue with this, with the, the booster for the 5 to 11-year-olds is, for one, they didn't really run any clinical trial data on this. They don't have much to go off of. Uh, they said, well, we showed that it that it did it raised antibody levels, but then they couldn't show for how long it raised antibody levels. They really couldn't show that it really did protect against, uh, even when they say, well, we show it protects against severe disease. The, this, the data is extremely flimsy. There's really not a lot to go off of. And it's because children are not really high risk. So the sample size would have to be so much larger than what they used in order for them to show any sort of benefit because kids are so little, low risk of any sort of negative outcome. And because they couldn't really do that, they used other measurements and it wasn't up to the same levels that they used for like elderly adults, for example. But they do not know how long this, bo- this booster actually lasts. That's why the New York data says, well, it's well, only like 12% effective against Omicron. Now, by the way, we're in Omicron subvariant. So it would be even less effective theoretically. But, you know, and and then they don't even know also the long-term side effects of this vaccine for the young kids. So it's kind of that cost-benefit analysis has not been done.
1: Hmm. So am I to understand that this newest vaccine has 80% efficacy in, in what? Not ending transmission, but preventing severe illness. Right. Okay. And can you tell me a little bit more about... What mumblings there have been about mandating vaccines for children? I confess not to have been following it as closely. Are there schools that have said that they anticipate that when the vaccines come, they are going to mandate, or is this something that we're kind of talking about in a hypothetical way?
3: No, there are schools that have said. I mean, it's not necessarily, governments aren't necessarily saying it yet um, that they're going to mandate it. I I mean, maybe like here in Los Angeles. There were school districts in
0: California that had planned. To mandate yes. it, and then maybe they—I think they changed course, right? Because so many families were like, "Hell no," against right? it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So
3: there, so it, it's it, you know, a lot of preschools, which are privately run, they're discussing it. So we're seeing it on kind of an individual, um, like locality, or even just like an individual private preschool sort of basis at this point for for that. But you know, when they say that it's eighty percent effective, you have to really parse through the data. They just don't they the effectiveness again children have lo- such low risk of any sort of negative covid outcome that the they don't the data that they're giving is extremely flimsy and i, I could do you know maybe i'll do like a I should do a, like, a real extensive radar on this to kind of break down the actual clinical trial data because the, cl- the clinical trials were basically either non-existent or extremely <laughs> flimsy, like 140 kids or even 1,500 kids, which is just not enough to show anything. And they would say, right. well, some got the sniffles and then others got the sniffles too, but uh, you know, the unvaccinated ones got the sniffles and the vaccinated ones got the sniffles, but the vaccinated ones showed an antibody response. So it's therefore effective because they had an antibody response. I, I, I mean, but
0: I, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to point this out as I, I, I retweeted this. Uh, so this was this fact was reported in The New York Times this week that 4000 children aged five to 11 have died from a covid related condition called multisystem inflammatory syndrome during the pandemic. That was wrong. They've corrected it. An earlier version of this article incorrectly referred to the numbers of children aged five to 11 with multisystem inflammatory syndrome. About 4000 have been diagnosed not die, oh. that was in the New York Times. They reported 4,000 child deaths from this, 4,000 diagnoses.
3: Hmm. Right, and and again, you know, we do know that the vaccine does cause, for example, myocarditis in the larger doses for the older kids, and so that's why they've held off on giving the younger kids the big, heavy doses. They give them a really small dose in comparison. And then they say, well, now it turns out that the reason why the vaccine's not as effective in those five to 11-year-olds is because they're getting that tiny dose. So then what's the solution? You know, and then they say also against the new variant. So it's the tiny dose in combination with the new variant, making it less effective. But again, they don't even have the data to say that it's really less effective. They just don't have the large enough sample size. There's, there's just so much wrong with the clinical trial data um, with the young kids. And a lot of it, I just have to say, is a lot of pressure from parents and teachers unions. They just really want... They, they just believe still like the vaccine's going to be the, the end all be all and save everybody. I don't know why they believe that when in adults it hasn't worked to, to for that, you know, to end the pandemic. People are still getting covid. Um, obviously, it's great for older people mm-hmm. preventing severe outcomes for people in those severe outcome categories. But children, young people, young adults are not in those categories. I agree with you, Robbie. I think it should be a parent's choice. My biggest issue with this right now is the CDC is recommending the booster for five to 11 year olds. They're not saying it's available to you if you want it which i think right. would be maybe a more appropriate for parents that do have immunocompromised um, compromised kids they're instead saying we recommend it for Well, especially because
0: years. the reality has been if the cdc recommends something then right all right thinking people have to do that it's not it, it, it's, right. no, it's not voluntary it's if the cdc says it it's not just it should it's supposed to just be guidance just advice well this is what we think but you know you set your own policies but you've been you've been considered a deranged Person or a rogue entity or a decision maker. If you don't do exactly what the CDC tells you to do, and then some, and then more caution.
3: Yeah, and the, right now the trend is there's a big push from from people saying, well, uh, the lack of clinical trial data is the same as the lack of clinical trial data for seatbelt safety, for example. So we still mandate kids wear seatbelts, even though we never really ran proper clinical trials on that. So therefore, it's fine to, uh, to you know, to recommend or even mandate these boosters when we don't have the clinical trial data for it. I mean, there's a lot of flaws in that argument. Uh, so, you know, seatbelts are like an obvious benefit, I think, that is outside of your body. It's not something you have to put into your body. You wear it for the duration of the car ride, right? And then, so... There, there's just a lot of flaws, I think, to those kinds of arguments. But that's kind of the trendy you, argument right now. You know, you know what I'm right going to say,
0: right? No seatbelt laws.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that there shouldn't even be seatbelt laws.
0: Yeah, that is what I was going to say. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's wrap this up. Tomorrow on Rising, maybe I'll talk about my views on seatbelt laws, or we'll dive into mar- uh, microchip shortages, inflation, and more with journalist
1: Eddie Alderman. And we'll continue to bring you updates on the tragedy in Uvalde.
3: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Be sure to check us out. Oh, look at all of us. Look at, they've changed it. There's so many <laughs> oh, of us. Oh, they got you in there, Brie. That's yeah, great. they got you in there. Wow. All a, right, whole, guys. We,
0: look like a, we look like a fun party now, or a moderately fun right? party.
3: I think we're actually a really awesome party. People don't realize. When Ryan is together, bringing most, is of the,
0: most of the heart for fun vibe. Uh, Ryan
3: sports actually sports
6: is a, Ryan's a riot. <laughs> oh, why is this doing the same?
0: <laughs> well, he loves when we bully him.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Poor Ryan. <laughs> we love you, Ryan. <laughs> all right,
0: all we'll right. see you next time, guys.
3: Bye bye. Bye bye.